Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Empowered Living, Volume 3. So let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Be Strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 10 begins with the word, Finally! Paul has had so much to teach us, but he's still got one essential point to make. Finally, my last point. And this last point is meant to sum up the entire book. Now, if you followed me through this series studying the book of Ephesians, you will remember that I spoke about our resources in Christ. Indeed, the book of Ephesians can easily be divided into two. The first three chapters are the doctrinal foundation for our lives, and the last three their application. That is, how do we respond now given what we've learned? And that makes sense with what Paul has been communicating. See, on the one hand, God has done it all. He's blessed us in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's chosen us before the foundation of the earth. He's adopted us into his family through Christ. We were dead in sins, unable to respond to him, but he, being rich in mercy, has raised us up with Christ. We were saved by grace through faith, and none of that was our own doing. All of salvation, even our response to the message, was God's doing. And furthermore, God has also broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. He's created a new race of humanity, the followers of Jesus, and that's the gospel. And so according to Paul's description, salvation is all God's doing. It is his sovereign grace. But then we come to the last three chapters, those practical ones, and they're the logical outgrowth of celebrating our riches in Christ. And here we find that we are required to do something. Yep, salvation is of grace alone, and it's entirely the work of God, but salvation does demand a response. It even demands an effort. It demands walking in the light, and it demands rejection of the darkness. That's why the word finally is so important. How then do we sum up this practical section, the one that demands we pay attention to the way in which we walk. Finally, in the end, here's what I must yet say, says Paul. So I'm reading Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. See, it turns out that the effort that's required of us is more than we can sustain. We're required to be strong, but it turns out none of us are strong enough to carry on the fight. Now, if you know your Bible, that should not surprise you. You might remember that Jesus spoke that way. You know, John 15, 5 records Jesus as saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, I wonder if you've noticed that. All the effort that you make in advancing in your faith always seems to end up in failure. And yet Paul in Ephesians 4, 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is, there's no shortage of power accomplishing all that Christ commands us to do. It's just that we don't have it, but he does. 
You will remember that I have wanted us to see that Ephesians describes Christians as wealthy. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. No spiritual blessing that is available is withheld from any follower of Jesus. It's just that we need to know that the resources aren't in us and the power is not in us. And so when Paul starts his finally passage, he's commanding believers to be strong, not weak, not vacillating, not frightened, but tough. Be strong. We should be known as people of strength. Challenges should not frighten us. Neither should the battle. We expect opposition. We know that living the Christian faith will require a fight, and it's a greater fight than we have imagined. You know, perhaps you've noticed that. Romans 7 reminds us that whenever we want to do good, evil is right there along with it, seeking to seduce us. You might also remember that when we engage in evangelism, we're actually bashing down the evil one's front door and we're rescuing his captives from his stronghold. You might also remember that in 2 Corinthians, the cost of Paul's ministry had been so great that Paul said that he had despaired of life itself. Listen, the Christian living is about battle, battling to subdue the flesh, battling for the souls of men and women, battling to make the gospel known, battling against a culture that seeks to subvert the ways of Christ. Let me also say this. In the historic Christian church, there have been two traditions regarding a Christian's response to participating in the military. You know, some have said, yes, Christians can and should serve in their nation's military, and others have strongly argued, no, no, we should not. Now, wherever you come out in that debate, and this study today is not about that, and yet know this, there is one battle, there's one combat tour, one war that we can't and must not escape. No believer in Jesus is allowed to be a conscientious objector in the great spiritual warfare that's before us. So be strong. I mean, that call to be strong has a sense about it that Bible readers should immediately recognize. Joshua 1 verse 6 says of Joshua, he's the leader of Israel and the commander of her army. He says, be strong and of good courage. That is to say, there lies before you a fight that will consume all of you. And the battle will be fierce and pitched. Your task is to remain strong. You know, in the first battle of the American Civil War, that was the Battle of Bull Run, in the early part of that battle, it seemed the Union side was winning. One Confederate soldier, overcome by what he saw happening on the battlefield, started to flee. He saw General Jackson on his horse, and he told him, the battle is lost. And Jackson calmly responded, if you think so, you do well not to say so. That is, even when it looks like it's turning against you, don't give in to your worst fears and don't tell others and discourage them. You fight and be strong. Again, I leave for another time the question of New Testament Christians and their role in human conflicts. But that being put aside, there is a battle much more fierce than the one that can be found in human warfare. It's our spiritual battle. Be strong. But as we've already seen, none of us has the strength to fight this battle. We're going to lose courage. And so knowing this to be the case, Paul adds the words, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, when we read that, we might think of Psalm 29, the psalm about the voice of the Lord, which is powerful. His voice breaks the cedars of Lebanon. It shakes the wilderness. It strips the forest bare. Psalm 24, verse 4 says, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. But we might also think about what Paul has already said in this Ephesian letter. 
Ephesians 3.20 reminds us that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. We may be weak, but God is strong. His strength has no limits. Psalm 115 verse 3 reminds us our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And for this reason, because we're weak and God is omnipotent, the battle in which we fight is not a battle that will be lost, provided we engage in the strength of the Lord. Now then, let's reread verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here's why believers need the Lord's strength for the battle. We're engaged in a great and deadly spiritual warfare. If we are to prevail in this awful fight, we will need to put on God's full armor. Now, before we consider the armor that's required, let's consider our foe. When Martin Luther wrote the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he included a line, Yet still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. See, the devil is not a concept or a symbolic way of speaking about evil. The Apostle Paul, as well as Jesus himself, believed in the existence of a personal being who is the king of an evil kingdom. In Matthew 4, verse 1, we're told that at the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, the devil came to tempt him. In John 8, 44, Jesus said that the devil was not only a liar, but he was the father of lies. The devil had taught the human race how to lie. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Peter advises God's people to be sober-minded, knowing that we have an enemy, the devil, who is our adversary. He's seeking someone to devour. And Peter says, you are to resist him. And we do know that in our day, the devil or the adversary has destroyed the ministry and reputation and the leadership of many. He simply devoured them. Revelation 2.10 says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Yeah, the devil incites hatred of Christians. Revelation 12.9 calls the devil the deceiver of the whole world. That's his task, deceit, creating hatred and division, sowing the seeds of murder and persecution, and devouring the reputation and the lives of countless men and women. You might have been effective for the kingdom, but now you're reduced to ineffectiveness. Yet Luther was right. Our ancient foe has craft and power. But Luther said, would we in our own strength confide our battle would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ, our strong champion, stands ready to assist the people of God in battle. Be strong. Get ready. You're in a great conflict. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind, like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day, and every time I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
The key to success in our great spiritual battle is to put on the armor God has supplied to us. And we're going to talk about that more tomorrow, but even though God supplies the armor, we're going to have to put it on. We will see why it is that, you know, shouting at the devil in frenzied prayer is not the means of defeating him. Rather, we win our fight when we become familiar with truth, when we're prepared to share our faith, when we're familiar with the gospel of salvation, when we learn reliance on the Spirit in prayer. That's our armor. Again, I'll say more about that tomorrow, but I can't here overstress this one point. Listen, shouting at the devil may give you a hoarse throat, and it may impress the gullible, but the devil laughs at such machinations. I've been to more than one prayer meeting in my life where I hear impassioned believers shouting at the devil. And I mention this here because the point of the passage before us is that we should not be deceived by the schemes of the devil. We should be aware of the ground on which the battle is being fought. It is fought when we forget the truth, and so our adversary confuses us with falsehood, so much so that we begin to believe the lie. See, the battle is fought when we're called upon to remember the gospel. Throughout the ages, there have been times in the history of the church when the gospel itself, that is, the saving news of Jesus, was almost entirely forgotten. Such was the case in the Middle Ages. Men and women were buying indulgences from the church in order to get their sins forgiven rather than relying on the life and the death of Jesus. See, it's not shouting at the devil, you know, that he shouldn't put sickness or financial poverty on us. See, the devil is fine. If you want to shout at him, he's not disturbed. But should you arise from your slumber and remember the gospel, Christ died for your sins and were reconciled to God through the blood of Christ and not our own merits. If you immerse yourself in biblical truth so as to know the God who has saved you, and if you do some of those things, the devil begins to quake. And so we're put on the armor of God rather than come up with our own schemes. We would be unprotected were it not for the armor. Our foe is formidable. Now to verse 12a. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Let's stop here. Take it in. Our great conflict, the war in which we're engaged, is not with human beings. See how easy it is to forget this. Human beings are not our great opponent. That seems to counter what we experience. We all know that human beings fallen into sin and by nature, as Paul has already said, are dead in sin and are dead to God. They live according to the passions of the flesh. And in chapter 4, 14, Paul has mentioned human cunning and craftiness and deceitful scheming. And then later in the same chapter, he mentions falsehood and anger and corrupting talk and bitterness and wrath. That all seems like our battle is with human beings. And furthermore, Paul himself encountered people as foes. Consider 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, where it says, you know, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. We also know that in 2 Corinthians that Paul mentions all the threats to his ministry, and they do include people, everyone from bandits to false brothers, that is, false Christians who were attempting to harm his ministry. Again, it does seem that he's doing battle with people. And so we might say, look, at the outset, it's clear that, that Paul had a great struggle with all manner of people. And we might expand this study to talk about Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, whom he called a brood of vipers, and of course, those men plotted to kill him. We might also remember some modern-day experiences. What are we to make of governments today that pass legislation that restricts the gathering and activities of Christians? 
See, I've noticed as of late that, for instance, the Chinese government is demanding of the Three Self Church in China that they regularly preach what the government calls patriotic sermons. That is, pastors are required by law to preach pro-communist sermons, and then there's a list of topics these pastors are not permitted to speak on. I mean, one example is the second coming of Christ. No, people and human power structures are a part of an enormous struggle. And so how are we to understand Paul's words when he said, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood? You know, one Bible teacher argued that Paul's antithesis is not absolute. That is, Paul's not arguing that there are no human deadly foes. But the ultimate evil, the most profound danger we experience is not on the earthly plane. It's in the heavenlies. Paul is saying, if you think people are a problem, you've not yet grasped the true nature of our battle. Look again at 12b. But against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have here four descriptors of demonic power, so let's look at each one of them in turn. First, they're called rulers. That is, just like earthly rulers, they have a realm over which they operate. So we might think of Jesus casting out demons, and then the demons are terrified and confused, and they say, have you come to torment us before our time? That is, they believe that they have the right to rule until the end of the world. Or think about the temptation of Jesus. Remember, Satan comes to him and he offers him the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give you this authority for, he says, it has been given to me. That is to say, Satan believed he had a global authority to entice the world into evil. Now, by saying rulers rather than ruler, we have to assume that Satan is the ruler of darkness, but that he's divided up his kingdom into powerful rulers who are answerable to him. They govern various parts of the earth. They subvert various kingdoms. Other translations calls this principalities or territories over which they rule. The second description is that they're authorities. That is, they have genuine authority to put the dictates of evil into effect. You know, what do they put into effect? Well, in John 10, verse 10, Jesus said that the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, yeah, of course, human beings fallen from God have the potential for great harm, but the authorities come to authorize their behavior. So think of it this way. Let's say the citizens of a country have great hatred toward the citizens of another country, but then the king in that first country declares war against the second country. Suddenly, the internal hatred which exists is now externally authorized. And so the killing and the harm that follows has become legal. In fact, it's required. That's what the rulers of darkness do. They authorize human evil. The third description is that they're cosmic powers over this present darkness. And the darkness Paul has in mind is the ignorance of God in his ways. The darkness doesn't just happen on its own. It's overseen by spiritual rulers. And then finally, fourth, they are spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I know many of us fear human forces of evil in various countries or human forces of evil in various laws that are enacted in our own country or even human forces of evil in various governments or organizations or terrorist groups and so forth. Now, Paul is saying, however, there's a spiritual realm that inspires all of this and authorizes the use of malicious evil. Think of it this way. 
Imagine a conference room with a large table. And sitting around that table are Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, Adolf Eichmann, Hermann Goring, Martin Bormann, Albert Speer, Joseph Goebbels, and others. How much evil is at that table? Imagine you could quantify it and give it a number. Let's say we added up all the evil and we came up with 1,000 points of evil. However, to our amazement, we find out there's not a 1,000 points here, but a million points of evil. And what's occurred? What's occurred is the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm have poured out their rule and authority onto that table, enabling a stunning amount of evil more than we can imagine or explain. Did you know, says Paul, that's what's occurring? And this evil has among its goals one that is paramount. This evil wants to destroy the church and persecute the people of Jesus. And so this evil authorizes persecution from without, but it also authorizes destructive heresies from within. Paul calls it doctrines of demons. He also authorizes moral corruption among key leaders in the church. And says Paul, all Christians who have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, all Christians who have been rescued from darkness into light must know that this is the warfare that rages. And you've been called to fight in this war. How do we fight? What's the nature of our fight? Paul says, we struggle not against flesh and blood. Indeed, there is something else. Tomorrow in the conclusion of this series, we're going to talk about the nature of our warfare. But even before we go to war, we need to hear the words of Scripture. Be strong in the Lord. Thanks, John. Uh, John, can I ask you this? How should we respond to the ongoing sin in our life? You know, those battles that some who are committed believers still struggle to overcome. I think um, with those what we call besetting sins, they're sins of the flesh. The flesh very quickly gets used to a habitual pattern. And uh, whenever we're in stress, it simply goes back to that habitual pattern. And once we recognize this to be sinful, the first thing that we need to do is we need to uh, confess it and repent of it before the Lord. Um, if we can find a trustworthy, mature believer, we need to find someone we can also uh, take into our confidence. I think also that uh, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us the strength. Many things can be done. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Empowered Living, Volume 3, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Momentum is picking up as friends from across the country sign up for the 2022 Israel Experience. Join us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, David walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's royal palace. Sail the Sea of Galilee and join in communion together at the Garden Tomb. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available online, and to ensure an intimate experience, numbers are limited, so register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.